that is that she um, very, very shortly after was beaten to death and what? died um, at that same place, her, her same place that, that I had left um, by some of the clients, her cocaine clients that oh I actually knew. God. So it's like everything kind of happened for a reason sort of thing, you know, where I got back to my apartment, I made a, a decision. And literally from that moment, um, that day, my life has been on an upward trajectory from, from then on. And I've never looked back um, since, since then. Welcome to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast, where successful entrepreneurs get their brains picked so you can apply mindset tricks and game-changing tactics that will help you become unstoppable. Now, here's your host, Daniel Geffen. Hey, fellow brain pickers. Do you have an upcoming book launch and want to sell thousands of copies in your first week? Getting booked as a guest on podcasts is the number one way to become a best-selling author and getting your message to the masses. My company, Geffen Media Group, gets inspiring authors booked on top-rated, targeted podcasts, and we do all the work, so all you have to do is show up and rock the mic. Head over to geffenmediagroup.com to get massive exposure. Hey fellow brain pickers and welcome to episode 148 of Can I Pick Your Brain? Today's guest has an insane story. He became obsessed with bodybuilding at the age of 13, but when his obsession turned to drugs, he found himself quickly losing everything, including his girlfriend, who got beaten to death. Today, Aaron Singerman is the founder of the fastest growing sports supplement brand in history. In today's episode, you're going to learn how to build major trust in a distrustful industry, how to compete in a very crowded market, whether a business partnership is a good idea, how to channel unhealthy obsessions, and how to live beyond fast cars and fancy watches. With tremendous excitement, I invite you to listen and learn from this inspiring true story of strength, hope, courage, and the power of making the right choices in life and in business. Enjoy the show. Hey, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here and get a chance to, to talk to you, man. Yeah, absolutely. Dude, you look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, man. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, for, people, for people listening, this is audio only, which is a shame because, like, you know, yeah, you definitely have a face for video not for radio um and you know for those for those listening like seriously aaron's pumped man it's like jacked (laughs) jacked up um what got you you you're clearly obsessed with um with nutrition right you've you've you run a uh very very successful in fact uh, one of the fastest growing nutrition uh, companies in the world right um redcon one uh, mm-hmm. Doing around what is it, twenty million a year now? Oh no, we're we're, we're way past that. Well, um, yeah, oh, we're okay. we're we, hopefully this year we'll be in the nine figures. But uh, last Whew. year uh, we were far far past uh, twenty million. My previous company got to twenty million, um, and uh, we passed that up in the first full year. Wow! Wow! What, what are you doing right now? What's the <laughs> 
you know, we, we I, I never like to talk about the specifics, but okay, uh, of the actual, you know, top line numbers. But, you know, um, we'll put it to you this way. Online, which is direct to consumer, we'll be doing close to 40 million if you're averaging the months strictly online. We also sell to Vitamin Shop and every other retailer. GNC, right. we're in over 70 countries, a thousand other brick and mortar mom and pop stores. We're in grocery stores, convenience okay. and gyms across the across the country and the world. That's incredible. Um, I'm, I'm most proud of the direct-to-consumer numbers because um, e-com is, you know, that's my passion. We talked a little bit before about digital marketing and yeah. direct to, uh, direct relation in terms of uh, marketing and direct response is like that's my, my thing. So, so how did your obsession start with uh, with health and <laughs> and fitness? Like, go back to when you were like younger before you had all that sure. success. So, um, you know, I, uh, I think back, you know, I, I actually try to figure out what the moment was, but the, the time that I can really remember being fascinated with building muscle was uh, watching, you know, me and my dad watched all the Arnold movies together and Rocky and all the movies like that, the 80s, the really like, you know, uh, epic 80s movies that, uh, that I'm trying to show my son now who's six, so my wife doesn't really like me showing all of them to him yet, but right. uh, in Predator, there was a moment in Predator where Arnold and Jesse Ventura and the crew are walking down, and he lifts up his arm to tell him to stop, you know, he puts right. the fist up, and you see his arm and his bicep and stuff, and I remember thinking uh, how cool that was, mm -hmm. and uh, having my dad show me his, which did not even, <laughs> did even <laughs> come close to uh, what Arnold looked like, right. and I think I was, I think Predator came out in 91 or so, so right. I was 11, and um, by the oh. time I was 13, I was being dropped off at the gym. Everybody in my bus, the bus would drop everybody off at their house, and I was getting dropped off instead um, at the, it's called uh, French Riviera Spa in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh -huh. That was the name of the gym. And so everybody would be dropped off at their house and then they would bring me last to the gym. And wow. uh, I'd spent two hours in the gym what? from the time that I was 13, um, all the way through high school. I would go there every day and then I'd walk home from the gym, uh, because I was that into it. And, uh, and I was very weird at the time because nobody else was really into that. I right. was the only one that brought protein powder to uh to school to high school and even before that oh so i'd God. be mixing up my protein shakes in between periods and people thought i was uh pretty strange that's crazy i mean 13 yeah. years old working out at the gym for two hours that's insane now keep in mind i had no idea what i was doing um but oh. i would i would stay in there and try to figure it out i'd watch all the big guys and see what they're mm -hmm. doing and then try to kind of replicate whatever they did and i had a, a the arnold schwarzenegger guide encyclopedia <laughs> bodybuilding and right. i would just study it so, um, yeah, I mean, that, that really got me going. Initially, I was very, very into it. And mm -hmm. I love the idea that you could change your body. You know, I am, um, by nature, I'm a tall, skinny Jewish dude. No. I mean, that's, uh, I'm 6'2", and I think that if I didn't do what I'm doing now, I'd probably be like 170, 175. And, and as a result of doing this for all these years, you know, I can maintain that, you know, 255 or so, 250 at 6'2". Wow. And uh, that's really going really against my genetics uh, because wow. I'm not meant to be like that, you know? Right. You weren't built, right. you weren't born in Russia where you're like just built no. like, an, like a tank. <laughs> no. Right. But what, like, uh, you know, a lot of people, they, they, they get motivated, right? They'll watch a movie. Like, I, I used to watch, you know, karate movies. And so I went to karate and then I went to, you know, ninjutsu and taekwondo and all that. And you try a few lessons. And as a 13, let's be honest, as a 13-year-old kid, you know, you're changing every, every two weeks another, another activity. Sure. What kept yeah. you motivated to keep doing it at that young age? I think I think that um, seeing progress, you know, because I was seeing progress, and one of the things that's really cool, like for example, with Taekwondo, 
it's mm. like you know you may break a board or you do like a, you know get a higher belt but yeah it's a it's kind of like a, a very gradual process and uh nothing really happens too quickly and uh, you may not be able to see the progress happening but at least with lifting weights you know i i would do one more rep every week i would write it down so i'd do one more rep with one weight or i'd be able to move up five pounds mm-hmm. on bench press so i was seeing a a significant enough for me you know gradual increase on a weekly basis so it was encouraging enough you know by keeping track of what i was doing it was encouraging enough to keep me going but also I have to say that I am, I think, also by by nature, a very, very driven person and, and obsessed. Mm-hmm. And that has followed me throughout my entire life. And, and uh, being obsessed with stuff is part of my personality. I mean, I, I can get very obsessed and, and uh, on things, whether they're good or, good or bad. You know, that, that has yeah. been a quality that has helped me and also hurt me a lot in my life. Where does the obsession come from? Because, I mean... And and I'm gonna just be straight up. Like, how many cars, how many nice cars can you have already? Like, how big can you get? How much money can you put in your account? Right. At some point, don't you just get a bit tired of it and just say, ah, you know what? What am I doing this for? You know. Um. So there's two answers to that. One one answer is that it's never enough, right? And I don't have that. Whatever the gene is or the the characteristic to be satisfied, Mm -hmm. I just don't think that I have that. You know what I mean? Like, so um, I have numbers in my head. Like, um, you know, I'm not necessarily chasing money. I think if somebody chasing money or chasing objects, you're going to have a a very vapid life where you're going to be, you never, never. um, Because what is it all for? Ultimately, what is it all for? Because that's the the flip side of it. Does it really matter? You know, for me, the quest for you know, ultimate freedom, which is the ability to do whatever I want at any time. Mm-hmm. That's really more of what I'm chasing. Um, but also, I'm chasing scoreboard. You know what I mean? So I am always trying to achieve the next thing, move to the next level, and make progress. So when people ask me, like, what's, like, how do you stick? Because I'm a very happy person. So I don't get really depressed. I don't get down, even when bad stuff happens, because mm-hmm. I'm so focused on progress. And for me, at least I, I kind of think this is everybody. What makes people happy in life is progress. So if you're, let's talk about fitness. If you're Wait. 350 pounds and you're super obese, right? Okay. And you are making progress and you're losing weight every week. You're going to be happy. You're going to be happier because you're making progress towards your goal. And if you are satisfied and you're 200 pounds and you don't want to lose any more weight and you have no more goals and you're just maintaining it's really easy to feel kind of depressed about that. What is it all for? Because you're not really progressing. You're not making progress. So for yeah. me personally, I'm always trying to figure out goals to progress. And uh, and some of the times those goals are based on um, like revenue dollars in, like we were just talking about, mm-hmm. or getting an object. And sometimes that happiness you get is fleeting. Uh, so you have to figure out what is it that you really want and what's really important to you. Because those things that you mentioned, like a, a fancy car, cars are awesome. I have a lot of fancy cars. I'm glad that I got them, but did they make me happy or are they making me happy? Not really, you know, maybe for a minute or two, but mm-hmm. once you um, achieve it, you have to figure something else that's important to you. Yeah. I want to challenge you on the, what, what you said about progress gives you happiness. What yeah. about all the athletes or the actors, the people on the top of their game who mm-hmm. then go and commit suicide? I mean, they were they were they were on top, man. They had all the money, sure. all the fame, all the fortune, all the, you know, everything you can imagine. And they progressed. They they got to the top. They got to the top. So what? Why suddenly, you know, end their life? 
So, so I think well, there's two two answers to that, in my opinion, anyway. One, of course, there's a chemical thing going on with some people. I mean, I have, I know, I have the propensity to be uh, to not be depressed, right? So, like, I've been at the depths of the bottom of the barrel. You know, I've been I've been in situations as bad as anybody. Um, you know, where I had no money and I lived in an apartment with no electricity and was addicted to I was addicted to heroin. And every day I was searching for drugs. And wow. I still wasn't like depressed. You know what I mean? I don't really have that. I, I was unhappy, but I wasn't really depressed. So there's people that could be depressed and have everything because mm-hmm. there's so, definitely some chemical component to it. But I will say that those people that you mentioned, right, were they still searching for meaning? Were they still searching for more progress? Had they Were they satisfied? They had reached the top. They had no more goals. So they had no more, like, you know, they literally had everything and they didn't know what the point of life was anymore. Um, you know, mm-hmm. for me, like uh, children and family is is um, is always enough reason for me to be here and to be excited about waking up because I get to spend time with my family and my three kids. So for for somebody to kill themselves, if they have all this positivity going on in their life, they must be missing something else, whether that's a, a purpose for living or a, a goals or mm-hmm. motivation to do more stuff or reach the next level. Or maybe it's family or lack of family. You know, I don't know. How old were you when you were um, addicted to heroin? Uh, I was addicted to heroin. Uh, well, I was so I, I was addicted to oxycotton first, um, okay. and that started when I was um, twenty-one or so, twenty-two, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that was when. And then eventually, I became addicted to heroin because I moved from. Uh, I was a refugee actually from New Orleans. I lived in New Orleans, and Hurricane Katrina happened. Wow! And um, when I moved i was forced to move to evacuate to houston texas um and when i got there there was no means of getting oxycontin anymore and so um i went on the hunt <laughs> literally for uh for a replacement and uh heroin was a lot easier to find and cheaper whoa so that's yeah and pretty uh pretty wild how did you get out of that then how did you get out of the addiction um so i got out of the addiction by since this is going to simplify it, I'm going to give you like the how I got out of it, and I'll give you the, the quick story version of how I got out of it. So uh-huh. I got out of it by making a decision to stop. And and that sounds really simplified. I wish it was but, that um, easy, huh? Really, <laughs> what's that? Don't we all wish it was that easy? Yeah, so, so this is the thing. This is my belief, is that ultimately in life, very few decisions, people very, very rarely make hard decisions because there's always some waffling in your brain, right? There's always some saying, well, it could be this or that, or maybe like, for example, with drugs, um, a lot of people will internally, even though they don't, they don't say this externally, they internally believe that maybe they'll be able to do the drugs again in the future, or maybe they'll be able to socially, you know, this or the other thing. And so even though they say, you know, I'm stopping, they, they think to themselves internally that, you know, Maybe to be okay in the future, or maybe they'd be able to do a little bit of this or that, or maybe you know, maybe this will they'll get cured in some way. So a mm-hmm. lot of times, there's always the potential in the in the person's mind to go back to revert or, or relapse. For yep. me, my decision was was so definite, and that's something that I've been able to do in life a lot is make uh, a decision to make a concrete decision. And what happened in in my life to make that was that I was with uh, a girl at the time was my girlfriend at the time, and uh, she was a cocaine dealer. Her old uh, boyfriend had, had been killed, and she uh, continued his business mm. uh, selling cocaine in quantity. And uh, this girl and I, basically she was supporting my whole life at the time. I lived with her, and and um, 
we were hanging out all the time. I lived at her uh, her house. People would come over there to buy drugs from her, or people would come out and hang out and do drugs, basically, because she was a cool person to hang out because she would give you free drugs, right? So there were a lot of people that would hang out, and we had a, a friend, or I had a close friend that was over one day, and uh, and he was hanging out, and we were all doing drugs, and me and her left the room, and we came back, he was dead. He had uh, he had overdosed. Oh, and this is somebody that I felt really close to, and that you know that I that I liked on a personal level. And when he I came back, I was now I've been unfortunately I've been around death um, uh, more than this, you know, uh, a bunch. But I've never had somebody that that I was close to die like that, where I was right there, where you know, it, I literally one moment the guy is alive, the next moment basically he's dead. You watched him and, die. Um, what's that? He, he died in front of you. Well, so he he was alive on the couch. We left the room. When we came back, he was dead. Oh, my God. Uh, as simple Whoa. as that. And he was dead enough. It's not, not like where Jeez. you can resuscitate somebody. You know, he, has, he lost control of his bowels. He was oh totally dead. God. No heartbeat, nothing going on. And, um, and so, essentially, when that happened, I was, like, in shock. And instead of her um, being, like, a normal, rational person, she started screaming at me to move his body, to put him back in his truck and drive him down the street. Oh my and, uh, god, it's like a movie. So, <laughs> it was intense. It was intense. Gee. And when and when I wouldn't do it's it, she started breaking hitting bad. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a real she started hitting me. What? She was screaming, move him and hitting me and hitting me. And uh and for whatever reason this moment was so um important to me. It all converged into this, you know, this one like singularity of a moment where I literally turned, ran out of the apartment, got in my car, drove back to my apartment, um, and locked the door and made a decision. I never spoke to her again. Um, and interestingly, this is like a sad, interestingly, it's like an aside, is that she uh, very, very shortly after was beaten to death and what? died um, at that same place, her, her same place that, that I had left um, by some of the clients, her cocaine clients that oh I actually knew. God. So. It's like everything kind of happened for a reason sort of thing, you know, where I got back to my apartment, I made a, a decision, and literally from that moment, um, that day, my life has been on an upward trajectory from, from then on, and I've never looked back um, since since then. You You've know? gone from, from drug dealer to health dealer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you like that? Yes. How's that for a yes. title? There wow. you go. That'll be the title, title of the podcast. Huh? Wow. What a, what a story, man. Jeez. So, how did you, I guess, start in the supplement business? What, how old were you then? So, when I got out of um, this whole drug stuff, being addicted and like being around all this stuff, I went back to my roots. And the only thing that I really had experience with as an adult um, was a personal being a personal trainer. Hmm. So, I got a job in Houston at a wellness center, a, a kind of a really nice place, um, yeah. and I became a trainer there. And I was making okay money, uh, but Certainly not. I mean, I was paying the bills, put it that way, paying the bills. And, uh, and I knew that I didn't love personal training. And um, there was a gentleman there. This is another like story that I've told plenty of times. This is, there was a gentleman there who was a trainer who had a brand new Porsche, a Porsche, uh, a 911 GT. And I love, I've always loved cars. I never thought I would have any of these cars. But I thought, like, man, you know, it would be cool one day if somehow I got a car like that. So right. when I saw this guy doing the exact same job as me, literally the same thing as me, but he had this, you know, 911 GT 
and I was driving a, uh, a, two, a 1991 uh, Lexus that needed to have oil put in it every day because it would need oil. Oh, my God. Uh, so, so I'm like, this guy has the secret. So I went up to him and said, hey, man, like, what are you doing? What are you like? How do I get a car like that? And, and his response was that you're never going to get a car like that. And, uh, and my first impulse was to be very angry at him. Um, because I, you know, you rarely hear, you rarely hear somebody flat out say that something like that to anybody. Right. And, uh, and he explained that it's because he has that car cause he loves training people he loves helping people. He loves uh, working with some of these cause it was mostly older people. There it wasn't athletes. Mm-hmm. He loves helping people, rehabbing them, having, solving problems, work with them. He gets in there early every day and stays late and that each and every one of his clients knows that he loves it cause they feel it. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you love training people? And he was right. No, I don't love it at all. I'm just trying to pay the bills. Right. And uh, that's the first time now in the, these days of social media, you hear everybody saying, you know, do what you love and stuff like this is like a, a thing that everybody says and you see it everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, the Gary Vaynerchuks of the world are out there saying this nonstop now. So, it's, yeah. but at the time, you know, this was a new concept to me. And uh, that, that I was not doing something that I loved. In fact, I was doing something I didn't like at all, but I was just doing it to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. So when I went home that day, I took all that obsession <laughs> that I have inside me and said, what, what is it that I love and how can I make money on it? And the only thing I could think of is bodybuilding. And uh, like I said, right. as a tall, skinny Jewish guy, you know, I'm not going to be a pro bodybuilder like a uh, uh, Ronnie Coleman or Arnold Schwarzenegger or any of these guys, Jay Cutler, who have made livings as the best bodybuilder in the world. Wait, it's very that, difficult to make money wait, in bodybuilding how you know, old, as a how, bodybuilder. It's tough. It's tough. How, but, old are, how old are you then at that point? I was uh, 27 years old then, 27. You, and you've been working uh, out since you were 13, so surely you were yeah. pretty built, no? You pretty built, but you know, all the years of doing cocaine and heroin, you know, it's hard to right, um, to stay good at right. eating right or, or eating Got at it. all, honestly, uh, or doing the gym and, and taking it seriously when you're on um, IV, right? You know, mind altering substances, right? Right. Uh, but I still was look, I was better than I was better than most people, but I certainly wasn't like a, a specimen at that yeah. point in time. Okay, so um, then you decided you're going to be a bodybuilder. I'm going to be in bodybuilding one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I started thinking about, well, what other ways can you make money in bodybuilding? What other ways can I could I make a living? I wasn't thinking like how am I going to be rich. Yeah. I was just thinking about how can I do this thing that I love and pay the bills doing that. Right. And um, so I started looking up to, uh, instead of the athletes, I started looking up to the publishers uh, like Ben Weeder and Joe Weeder. Um, who started, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the magazines and brought Arnold Schwarzenegger to America and uh, and ended up making uh, billions of dollars doing this, creating this industry. I started looking up to the, the publishers of some of the magazines and uh, and I started deciding like, okay, I'm going to figure out a way to do something like that. You know, like even if I'm just a writer in a magazine that pays the bills, like that's pretty cool. So what I did is I spent all my time away from training because I still had to keep training people because I had to make money to pay the bills. But instead of going to movies and going on dates and, you know, doing all the, the typical things, watching TV or whatever, I um, I spent all my time writing articles for magazines for free and just sending them out. I listened to every podcast that was out there for fitness. And then I would write the the podcasters after I'd email them some kind of something about the show. I went mm-hmm. on to all the bodybuilding forums because there was a bunch at the time. This is before, really before Instagram, Facebook was just for college students at the time, or right. maybe right about then. And so the only place to really talk about fitness was on these bodybuilding forums, and everybody would use all their 
like aliases like swole gun 69 <laughs> other, you know, other nonsense right? right but i was aaron singerman and the whole purpose of me posting thousands of posts on these boards was hopefully somebody would notice me the same as everything else all the other things that i was doing was hoping to get some attention so somebody would give me a shot to do something where i could make some money in uh in fitness and uh i got lucky um or, I, or whatever, I got an opportunity that I seized. This uh, one of the podcasters, Carl Lenore, who had a, a very popular show that's still out there called Superhuman Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, he responded to an email for me, and I was able to get him on the phone. And then when we ha- were on the conversation talking about it, he mentioned that I had a really good radio voice, mm-hmm. and I never, uh, I never heard that before. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of opened up a chance for me to say, "Well, ha- let me interview you." Because <laughs> um, he's done this show. At the point in time, he had done about a thousand podcasts on wow. Superhuman Radio, but never had been interviewed. Um, right. So, so he's like, "All right, yeah, you could come on and inter- interview me." And so I spent the next week, a hundred hours planning what? every really? question, researching, practicing saying the questions to the mirror. I mean, like wow. really, like a maniac. Um, wow. And because I didn't know this was like my only chance, I felt like. So right. I got on the show with him. We did an hour interview, and after it was done, he said, "Man, you were really good." have you done this a lot before and no i had never done it before i told him no and he said um he said well you ever think about doing a a podcast and uh, i said well i would love to do one on bodybuilding and fitness and stuff and so he said let's do it he said uh if you can sell the advertising let's let's do it and so we did and we did uh, 100 episodes uh with a show called off topic radio and that led to another opportunity where i became a part of this big multimedia website that covered fitness mm-hmm. and over a few years i became the editor-in-chief of that site and um and that was the biggest multimedia site in fitness at the time and um through that i uh, i became the marketing director of a supplement company mm-hmm. um, while i was the editor-in-chief and i continued to look for opportunities through being the editor-in-chief of that i mean of the uh, the marketing director of that other uh supplement company uh, I was able to take a product that he was going to get rid of, that the owner was going to get rid of, and um, sell it for him. So instead of him getting rid of it, I uh, I brought on my best friend at the time, uh, PJ Braun and I, and we sold this product that he couldn't get rid of, that he didn't want to get rid of. Wow. And we sold it in six weeks, and we made $75,000 in profit and paid him his part of profit and the, and the cost of goods. In six so weeks. with that $75,000, $75, we could have bought you know, me and PJ could have got a car or wow. whatever, bought some some Rolexes or done something stupid. Yeah. But instead, I proposed to the uh, the owner of the company to let me and PJ continue selling, buy more, continue selling mm. this product under a different name of a new company, mm-hmm. and we would give him thirty three percent of the company. And that company Smart. was called um, Blackstone Labs. Wow. Uh, which three years later on Inc. Five Hundred, we were the twenty seventh fastest growing privately Jeez, owned uh, man, that's company crazy. in the country. Pretty neat, and we ended up buying that guy out, Robert out. We a year after we started it, me and PJ pooled together every dollar, literally every dollar we had, and gave him six hundred thirty-five thousand bucks to buy out his his uh, his thirty-three percent. Wow! And um, yeah, that was a big day. It was literally every dollar that we had to buy him out. And um, you just went all in. You were like sitting at the poker table and just went all in, all in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seemed man. like a good um, decision. It was a good decision. He was kind of a, a wild man, and he wasn't contributing anything to the business. You know, he was just a, a pa- passive owner, and uh, and uh, we just wanted to get rid of him really, really bad. And we had a whole lot of confidence in the business and in ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we put every dollar we had into uh, into buying uh, buying Robert out, and uh, Blackstone Labs 
went on to be very, very successful. And it was a almost strictly e-com business. Um, and we were some of the very first people really monetizing in our, in our field, monetizing Instagram and, and Facebook and using um, digital marketing to actually convert people online and bring them to the website. You know, the number one thing that I think what I'm hearing from this is that you seem to just go all in on everything you do. Like, <laughs> yeah, seriously, yeah. you just like you I see do. something and you just go all in. You don't like you saw this opportunity to to to, to interview this guy and you spent a hundred hours that week preparing, just going all in on it. Like you know, yeah. everything. And I love the yeah. way I love the way that you kind of you're like, yeah, I got lucky. No, dude, you didn't get lucky, man. Like you 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 put out a thousand articles. How many people, honestly, like listening to this right now? How many of you can like put up your hand? That you put out a thousand of anything. Like, let's be honest. Let's be let's be real here. A thousand articles, or a thousand blog posts, or a thousand podcast shows, or a thousand videos. That's how Gary V got to be Gary V. He put out a thousand videos. Nobody knew him. Right. But you yeah, I mean, in. so two things I definitely have have in me, and I do think that this is something that anybody can can um, can build. All these habits that we talk about. I do think are all buildable, you know, like I think, cause I certainly have built qualities in myself that, that were not there initially, but the, uh, the belief in myself, um, I don't have a lot of, uh, doubt. I don't, and, and I have so probably so little self doubt that it's probably unhealthy, but there's, I do go all in and I don't think a lot about, of the consequences. You know, my, my dad, he passed away a few years ago, uh, very unfortunately, but my dad was a uh, very risk adverse. And so my example through life was a very uh, smart man who had a lot of potential who really didn't go all in on anything. I mean, mm -hmm. even buying a couch or a TV, he would invest <laughs> in it for a year before he would decide. No kidding. <laughs> He'd read every review before he decided to buy a TV. All right. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, am, I basically, I don't know if it's because of that or what, but I do not debate. I either do or don't do. And if I do, I go all in. It's all in all the time, right? Hmm. Um, and I just, honestly, I always just know that it's going to work out. And even though it doesn't always work out, I just internally know that it will. And so, like, all of those articles and everything that I was doing, I had belief that somebody somehow was going to notice it. Somebody mm -hmm. was going to see something and say, well, this guy is persistent. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Carl Lenore noticed it enough to give me an opportunity. And then when he did get an opportunity, I made absolutely sure that I did everything that I could do under my control mm -hmm. to be good so that maybe there would be a chance that he would think like, hey, this guy is good. And then maybe that would lead to something. Mm. Now, that, that $75,000 that you, that you made in, in six weeks, I mean – what were you doing differently? Because this guy was trying to flog this thing for ages, right? He had, yeah. What did you do differently? So uh, we did a few things differently. Um, number one, we, we mobilized all of our resources. So PJ and I were well-known in the fitness industry, while as this other guy um, what really wasn't. He didn't have the connections that we did. Mm -hmm. um, so we utilized the, the connections the, you know, the, the, that we had mm -hmm. built over. I traveled the world and then PJ was a very successful amateur bodybuilder. So we knew a lot of people. And then the other big thing is that with supplements at the time, nobody really personalized their business. Hmm. So like, um, there's a lot of big companies out there, Optimum, Nutrition, Muscle Tech. There's a lot of uh, big companies, but nobody really knew who owned any of it, you know? So like, even to this day, most of the large companies that are out there, nobody would be able to tell you who owns it. And as a result of that, 
sometimes there's not a whole lot of confidence in uh, in, in products, product. yeah, and especially in smaller brands. So for us with Blackstone Labs and when we were selling the initial products, nobody ever got in front of it and said, "Hey, this is mine. Trust me. Mm. Like you know, I'm not yeah. going to screw you over. I'm going to give you a a great product for a fair price." It just didn't even exist. So it was just mm-hmm. a random brand. Like this other gentleman, the one we're talking about before, who we bought out, he owned a company named Iron Mag Labs. And everybody felt like it was me and PJ that were the owners because we were the only ones that were ever in front of it. Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so when, when we did start selling the product, we, we used all the connections that we had. We, uh, we allowed people to know, you know, like, hey, trust us. This is going to work for you. Give it a shot. And then the other good stuff we did that was pretty basic is we used all of our social media at the time and the, our friends who also um, had some influence to direct people to the site to uh, to get them to purchase it. So that worked for you then. Let's mm-hmm. just fast forward for a second. Today, you're in a hugely, hugely saturated online market. Yes. Okay. Sure. Uh, you know cost per clicks and all this stuff like there's there's so much money being poured in i mean you, how much are you spending a, you told me this before we we recorded what was it seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in november yeah we spent uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand. yeah in december a little less but yes <laughs> my goodness i mean that again that's going all in like you're putting in you know that's how do you how, how do you compete how do you compete with so many players just chucking money into this so um first off you know, my industry, the sports supplement industry, is um, is certainly very competitive, very competitive. But they don't have in our industry. There's not a uh, a huge surplus of very creative uh, people that you might find in other larger industries. Mm-hmm. So, like you know, I would so put put it this way. I think that I'm um, towards the top in terms of you know creative you know ability and uh, stick-to-itiveness and intelligence in my thing. Maybe if you put me on Wall Street or something, I would just be, you know, average mm. or something. I don't yeah. know. I've never done anything else. But in my industry, you know, there isn't a lot of out-of-the-box thinking, right? There's a lot of people doing the same thing over and over again. Mm. And uh, not, and especially people that start to be successful, they don't continue to try to innovate and come up with new stuff and new content and everything. So that's one thing. But the other big thing, is that um, we, I think I have a very good handle on what works for us. So when we create content or we create deals or anything that we're doing, we're trying to um, elicit emotion. So we've had a lot of success with stuff that's uh, funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a lot of video. A lot of our uh, video ads are, are funny or trying to elicit some kind of like where people watch it and they think, well, these guys are cool. Even if it mm. may not convert initially, it may not be a video that's going to get you to go and buy something immediately, but it is going to get you to go, whoa, they're cool. And right. and hopefully come check out the site. You know, we obviously do everything you can imagine for retargeting. Um, so yeah. once somebody comes to the site, but we're constantly thinking of new stuff that we can do and experimenting. You know, like I told you uh, before, I have 17 people in the marketing department here at the office mm-hmm. and uh, we're testing everything. You know, we're, we're constantly... Uh, not satisfied. We're constantly trying to figure out what worked, why it worked, if it didn't work, how come it didn't work, mm. and uh, and re- so we don't so we don't do any like set it and forget it anything. Everything right. is constantly being updated and, and you know, trying yeah. to either scale or start over. And um, you know we have thousands of campaigns going on now, and they're literally being updated and checked on all day long and all all night long. In other words, you're just not lazy like most other of the competitors. <laughs> pretty pretty <laughs> right, much. Right. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, it's easy to think that you're just going to turn something on and it's going to work and then you're going to be able to 
you know, check on it every once in a while and mm-hmm. just keep working. But that's just not how uh, digital ads work. Even so a great one doesn't work like that. So here's the thing. So someone's listening to this right now. They've got a small business. They're starting out. Okay. They've got a small budget. And, you know, your philosophy is just go all in. If you've got $5,000 in the bank account, put it in. Like, just just put it into <laughs> growth. Like, scale that thing. Right? You've got $750,000. Okay. Throw it in. Like, but there's this fear. There's this fear of what if I lose it all? Like, what would happen sure. if you had a bad campaign? What if it went south? That's a lot of money. That's close to a, that's that's like almost a million dollars of of, yeah. of 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 loss. Like that's yes. that scares the hell out of most people, right? I mean, and again, it depends on your level. You know, some people for them five thousand dollars, if they lose that money, that's like everything they've got right now. You know, so, so I, I want—I definitely want to qual- qual- qualify that. I would not tell somebody to put everything they have into one ad campaign. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't get to this number that we're talking about—that we're spending a month initially. So when the when we started out, we set our advertising budget for our first month at something like thirty or forty thousand bucks. Okay. Um, and then we scaled it up gradually because if I were to like so say. Um, uh, a small business comes to me tomorrow um, because I could do what I'm doing for Edcon for any business. I'm not, I'm not in the business of doing that uh, and I'm not interested in doing that, but mm-hmm. hypothetically somebody could come to me with a, I don't know, a t-shirt business. I'm sure I could do, I could make it blow it up to a large degree. Um, but the, I would never tell that person, Hey, you need to just give me, you have $700,000. Let's put it into ads this month because it takes a long time to scale the ads correctly or not. A, I mean, not a long time, but it takes time. You can't just start a new business and then right away spend $700,000 a month. You're going to lose a whole lot of it. Um, going let's, take like the, that. let's, let's take the but t-shirt. If you do it right. You should be making the money back. Like if your ads are working, mm-hmm. your cost of goods, you figure out your cost of goods, your cost of acquisition, and you should be making money on that. And if you're not, you should at least be making your money back to mm-hmm. be able to re up. And if you're not, then your ads are not good. You need to figure it out. You need to re- restart the whole process. Um, well, so when that. people say like they don't want to spend money on digital marketing ads, I get it because they don't know what they're doing and they're doing it incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Because if you're doing it correctly, and I tell you, let's say, you know, I say, Daniel, how much money do you want to give me? If every dollar you give me, I can give you two. How much mm. will you give me? As much as possible. Right. That's the answer. So if ads are working correctly to some degree or another, even if it's a penny more, you know, you should be able to make some money or at least break even and acquire new customers. Because ultimately, if you have a good product, the customer will come back and purchase again. So we like at Redcon 1, 70 percent of our per- of our people that purchase, purchase again a second time. And do you, hopefully you don't need to spend any advertising budget to get that person to come back. Did you invest first in people or in product or in marketing? So with Redcon 1, the new business, I was, um, in terms of the product, I was um, very fortunate to have built great relationships. So with the product, my uh, manufacturer uh, essentially fronted me uh, $500,000 in product wow. to sell. Whew. So he gave me $500,000. I designed the product. We sent him the, the artwork and the label files, all that stuff. And then he sent me back the product and said, pay me in 60 days. So I got $500,000 in product in which that product I was able to sell within 60 days. 60 so days? Half a million yeah. dollars worth of products in 60 days? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so That's we didn't pressure. have to put any money in product. I, uh, his 60 day terms was enough to, to get us going. So I never, I've never put any money in, uh, initially to buy products. Okay. Uh, which is well, an that, unusual story, right? That's not it, something it, that's 
No, but again, don't call it luck because you worked hard to get there. That's the thing. I was about to say lucky, and I changed yeah. it to uh, fortunate to have good connections. Yeah, so. yeah. I love it when people are like, yeah, I got lucky, and this happened. Come on, like, <laughs> look right. at the backstory. Yeah, you're, right. you're right. No, yeah. a, lot, a lot of work went into building that relationship so that the guy trusted me with that kind of money. Right. That was all about building relationships. So when you were hiring your, your, your team, again, like you know, one of the things that a lot of small businesses struggle with is, is, you know, how can I scale up and deal with demand when I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to pay the salaries, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I invested initially. We had a few people that moved over with me when I left Blackstone. And, uh, you know, we it was a dramatic leaving. You know, we had a big partnership dispute and I left kind of relatively suddenly. So when I left, a few people came with me. Uh, my father-in-law, who, uh, who handles shipping here, um, one of the warehouse guys who worked in the warehouse, who set up the warehouse, came over to help me with warehouse stuff. Mm -hmm. My assistant at the time, Eduardo, who's now our chief of staff here, who's like third in command of, of the whole business, wow. he was the assistant at the time. He came over with me, and uh, and that was it. And so, uh, and Eric Hart, of course, who's a number one, number two guy here, who's my vice mm -hmm. president, also came over um, and and started helped me start Redcon. But we we started hiring people right away because mm -hmm. I knew I needed uh, graphic people, I needed needed IT people for the website, I knew I needed people to help with the digital marketing. Um, I knew I needed video people for a video team. So I, I initially um, found a spot, which is a, one of, we have seven warehouses now, and this is the one that we're, I'm sitting in now is a, is a flex space where it's an office and warehouse. And um, when we got this space, when I walked in here, I was nervous because it's $12,000 a month was the rent. Jeez. And it was uh, 8,800 square feet. Hmm. And I was like, damn, am I making a mistake? Like, am I right. buying off more than I can handle? But yeah. I only thought that for a day or so, and then I signed the lease, and we started hiring people. <laughs> all and, in, baby. Uh, what's that? He goes all in again. <laughs> yeah, I went all in. I went all in. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is that we filled up this warehouse uh, within the first six months and uh, and had to get a second one, a third one, a fourth one, and so on. So, wow. But I was nervous initially um, to sign it. And when I did, you know, we started hiring people, and um, the hiring people process is also scary because you're trusting people um to be good and uh, yeah. it's very tough to find good people and then to keep them motivated and then honestly the hardest part for me is firing bad people because i'm just like too nice yeah um, i know that feeling you know. it's so, yeah, annoying. so i know they're good not good but it's hard to fire them so that's what i have eduardo for he loves to fire people so, <laughs> yeah. give me eduardo give me him yeah. <laughs> literally literally i'll be like okay eduardo fire <laughs> <laughs> He's like a dog that needs meat. Here, 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 have a piece of meat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he, he. So honestly, what we've done, we've been. I've been really good at hiring people and finding the right people. Um, I don't really look heavily at uh, education or even at resume. I look at the quality of the work that they're able to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then I interview them. The people I don't really interview too many people now, um, but because I have department leaders who interview people, but I'm, I think I'm a pretty good judge of character and I'm a good judge of if their work is good or not. And, right. um, and then honestly, you just don't keep people too long if they're not good. Right. And that's the thing that I've learned um, that you just can't, you, you can kind of tell if somebody's going to be good within the first 60 days, 90 days for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, in 90 days, you know, like they're, if they're good or not good. And then you just have to have the balls to fire them you know, and start over. Right. Going back to Blackstone, so you said you had a really bad fallout with a, the business partner. That was the guy who you you ended up both buying out the third partner, right? Yes. yes. And then you right. had this successful business. This is the guy that you were teaming up with, PJ. You were like killing it together. What happened? So 
it's an unusual story in the fact that we were doing really good when the partnership dispute happened. So hmm. from talking to people and knowing other business people, you know, usually partnership disputes happen when things aren't going good. Yeah. And um, it's like uh, divorce. You know, if, if everything is going right, you know, it's it's rare. It's when there's money problems or something happens bad or yeah. infidelities. Right. None of that stuff happened in terms of our business relationship. We were doing great. Mm-hmm. But me and him grew apart as people a lot. So um, when we met initially, and we, we've been, we were best friends for for a decade, you know, really close. Wow. We went and did everything mm. together. Very, very good friends. And um, people change. So when I was 28, and we we met, uh, 27, right, right around the time that I got off drugs, basically, we we met and became close friends. We would travel the world in bodybuilding and fitness, you know, and go to all these events together. And you know, we like to hang out and party and meet chicks and stuff. This was a very different time in my life. And so, hmm. I eventually met my wife. We have three little boys now. My hmm. life is just much different, and my priorities are much different than I was when I was 27. Whereas hmm. he kind of never really changed. Uh, in terms of his priorities. And then, you know, I guess when you're doing marketing together, you're doing this business together, if your sensibilities are very different. Yeah. And uh, and you're, so like one of the things I have found is that money definitely changes people. So like success and money change people every single time. But it can change people in a positive way. It can accentuate the positive stuff. It can make a yeah. generous person a very generous person. Mm. You know what I mean? It can make, it can make somebody who's a good dude, a really good dude. He wants to help everybody, but it can mm. also make you a, a total asshole. And it can right. make you very, very, uh, think you're very, very important. Arrogant. And so yeah. I know that, that to, to a large degree, that's a lot of what happened to him. He became somebody who feels he's a very, very big deal. And, um, and I don't know, man. Honestly, we just started growing apart, growing apart. And by the end, we got into a fight that would have been a very little fight about firing somebody, uh, somebody mm. that I had to, I felt like we had to fire. And, uh, and he agreed, I ended up firing the person. And then the person came and cried, like physically cried to PJ and PJ called me up and said that he decided to take him back. Oh, when he, when he said he decided to take him back, he had already, his passwords had been changed. You know, Mm. everybody in the office had been told, uh, and he had called me, uh, cursing me out and stuff like that. So it had been, it was way too far to change your mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've come to find that if you uh, have an interaction, a bad interaction with somebody, you can never take them back uh, because they're always going to have resentment. Because I have taken people back that I've fired in the past mm-hmm. and or that have quit. If they quit and they decide they don't want to be there anymore, you can't take them back. It just doesn't ever work. It'll never, mm-hmm. They'll never be back 100% committed. So um, let alone if they call you and curse at you and, and you, you tell everybody you fired them. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So um, that when he called me back, we got into a huge fight about taking this guy back. Um, which it, incidentally, once we had this big breakup, uh, he, this guy ended up getting fired by PJ, which is oh. a, ironic, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we had this huge fight and, um, it, it ended up devolving into basically him and I separating where, uh, we went our separate ways. We had this big, uh, big fight and, uh, I, uh, I ended up leaving and basically what ended up happening was I got, I continued my ownership in Blackstone, so I kept all my ownership, but I lost my voting rights in exchange for all of the other businesses that me and him shared together. So basically, Mm -hmm. he got to be the big boss of the big company and call all the shots, and I got his ownership and his voting rights and all of our other businesses that were successful um, Mm -hmm. in exchange for my voting rights. Mm -hmm. And um, it ended up um, being pretty nasty, like a divorce, basically. 
but in the end, I ended up selling my voting rights, I mean, my shares of that company to our manufacturer and getting money out of the thing. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being a big life lesson. And it also became, even though it was a very dramatic point in my life, it was a very like a lot of anxiety and like I essentially lost, um, you know, my baby that I created. You know, I created yeah. this thing from the very beginning and I put all of myself, just like you said, all in yeah. on this and then lost it, lost all the control over it. And it, and it became something that I, that I didn't even like, but it, it presented an opportunity to start something, start Redcon one, which exemplifies is, is a, is a shining example of how I wanted to do everything in the first place. And so I created this much, much, much more successful business mm-hmm. um, that's much more mainstream and far less, you know, there's no really anxiety or drama tied to it, and it all happened because of this dramatic time in my life. So, even though it was terrible at the time, it ended up being the best thing that ever happened. Did you get another partner after that, or you just said no, no more partnerships? <laughs> That's no, it, huh? Um, no. So, I uh, I have had people offer money to come into Redcon One, and um, and initially. Um, I knew that I had the, the finances and the means to start it all on my own. And mm-hmm. my experience working with PJ and other partners in the past has been um, ex- exclusively, almost exclusively negative. So mm-hmm. I decided to do it all on my own. And I, and I won't tell you that I would never, ever take another partner. Um, you know, I won't say like it's impossible, it'll never, ever happen. But uh, that person would have to be a really value-added partner, super value-added. Mm-hmm. Um, what about people so. who think it's lonely in a business and they decide they want to get a partner because they want to bounce off ideas and they want to kind of like have their yin to their yang, right? Like sure. I'm the creative and they're the operations. Like sure. what, what, what would you say to, to someone that's listening to this who's thinking about taking on a partner? So um, I can tell you firsthand that uh, it is fun to have, like when me and PJ were creating the success and yeah. we get big purchase orders, we jump up and down and yeah. dance. High and, five. Yeah. High <laughs> five. Yeah. Oh, it was so awesome. But, um, but that was much less <laughs> than the, than the, than the bad stuff and the fights and the arguments and the disagreements. Mm-hmm. If you, I mean, if you do get a partner, you definitely need to make sure you stay in your lanes. And the problem is that is when you do have success, people start to think that their opinions are maybe more valuable or that, um, they're yeah. not being considered enough. So, I mean, it is cool to have somebody to celebrate with. It's like going on vacation. If you go on vacation by yourself, it's never <laughs> going to be as much fun as going with your wife or your best friend, right? right? Because you're not enjoying it with somebody else. But here's the solution to that. Get some really key people who are very, very important to your business that you can consider friends, even though they work for you um, and they're working with you. So I have Eduardo that came with me, and then I have Eric Hart, the two gentlemen that I mentioned in the beginning. And when I celebrate, I celebrate with them. Uh, the the big difference is that they can't uh, tell me, hey, I don't want to do this, or that mm-hmm. I can't, you know, um, you know, have a huge argument with me about anything with it. You know what I mean? So we're still celebrating together, and then I have my wife, which is my ultimate partner. So um, I have my wife, who's the real partner, and then you know, um, and that's that's really all you need, in my opinion. In my <laughs> personal opinion, you should not get a partner to collaborate with unless they have some sort of skill set that is totally unique and different than yours and can add value. That's what I'm saying when an ad, added value partner, they right. need to have something that you cannot do uh, and that they're gonna be bringing value to your future business, uh, whether mm-hmm. it be money or skill that you don't have. Uh, yeah, and the truth is you can even hire that out. So even if sure. you know, even if they do have that skill set, you can, you can hire that skill set out. So. Or you could raise money or you could apply for a loan. I mean, right. there's a lot of things. I would use it as a last resort. So like for me, 
if a partner came in and said, Aaron, I'm going to give you $50 million for 25% of -hmm. the business and I'm going to be a non-voting member and I'll come in once a month to look over the books and hang out and maybe give you some casual suggestions, I would consider that. Um, right. because I would take the $50 million and I would put it into my pocket. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but if somebody came in and said, Hey, I am amazing at video production. Give me a portion of your business. I would be like, Nope, no, I wouldn't even think about it. It would be right. impossible. Right. Um, so yeah. or any, or any skill set, honestly, any skill set, I would say no uh, to at this point, but there is, there is stuff like, I mean, like if you're doing a tech project and you don't know how to code and you need some, somebody Correct. who's going to be able to code and you don't have the money to pay somebody to code, well, maybe that's something you need to do. Yep. If you were to go back and start all over again, let's say that you just had to go, like you went, you got, you had to start a supplement company sure. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. What would you, what would you do? What would be the first thing you start doing? Um. Well, I mean, if I'm starting, a, so I'm starting a, a whole new supplement. Ground company, zero. Basically. You're just starting from uh, ground zero. You don't have anything. Well, the first thing to do, um, the the initial stuff would obviously be the company setup stuff. You know, create an LLC, start a bank account. Yeah. Find a, skip a, that. A name. <laughs> That's the boring I think part. The probably, what's that? <laughs> That's the boring part. <laughs> the boring stuff. Yeah. The most exciting thing that would be the first thing that you need to come up with is a name. Uh, a good name really? is. That's almost as important as anything else. Nah, uh, come on. You serious? Oh, yeah. Very important. Why? What's name? Redcon 1? It doesn't mean anything. Yes, it does. See, there you go. Well, to there, you. There's your first <laughs> mistake. All right. Redcon 1 is, uh, if you Google Redcon 1, Redcon yep. 1 is military uh, jargon for the highest state of readiness. Ah. Uh, so, Redcon 1 literally means, is used in the Army as... Uh, the highest state of military preparedness or readiness. Mm, okay. So, for for my name, let's talk about Redcon One. That's a good uh, that's a good segue to what does Redcon One mean. So, Redcon One has all of the factors that you need. It, it literally checks every box of a name. Um, like literally, the the best top tier name you could come up with. Redcon One is a great example, mm-hmm. and I give you the reasons why. Number one, it's easy to remember. Right, Redcon One, very easy to remember. It's mm-hmm. easy to spell. Very easy yeah. to spell. Um, the the you can't like misspell Redcon one. Um, one second, but is it with a is it with a one numerical one or is it spelled? We have both of them. So if you go to uh, Redcon one dot com, that's how we write it with a number right, one. Fine. But also you type in one, and it also goes to the site. Okay. And that leads to number three. You need to be able to get the URL. So yeah. Yeah. this sounds easy, but if you come up with something cool that's short, easy to remember, easy to spell, mm-hmm. good luck finding the URL. Good luck. Right. Um, it's it's damn near impossible. Come up with something cool, and somebody else has already has it and has already bought the URL. Uh, these days, short short ones, something with five or six letters, dude, they're they're next to impossible to get. <laughs> so, you have to have the URL. You have to be able to register the name, meaning somebody in your industry doesn't already have it, hasn't already registered it, trademarked it, right? <laughs> so that's another thing. Everything's been trademarked. Anything cool, probably already trademarked, especially in an industry that's busy and competitive. Um, so, like, our category is 005, look for something cool. It'll be tough. And then <laughs> the last thing and the ultimate thing, if you really want to have a name that really works for you, have it mean something. So have a story behind it. Right. So Redcon 1, as I said, means the highest level of military readiness, the highest level of readiness. So that's our slogan, the highest level for the highest level of readiness. And who <laughs> does that apply to? It applies to everybody. It applies to a soccer mom wants to get the highest level of readiness, a Navy SEAL, a professional bodybuilder, a football player. Everybody wants that. It appeals to everybody on some level. Hmm. Um, 
whether you're a student going to school, yeah, you want to be ready, of course. Being prepared, right? That's the first part of being successful. Um, so that is a big, big deal to come up with Kiss. a name and to come up with a logo that's cool. So you got and, the name, um, you got you got the name and logo. What's the next stage? How do you start biz getting the business? next stage would be formulate your products. Pick the products that you want that you think are important mm-hmm. and pick uh, pick those products. Now that that sounds easier than it is because it is a crowded space. It's a super mm-hmm. crowded space. So what's going to separate you from everybody else, right? That's one of the things I tell people in business in general. Like, why are they going to buy your T-shirts? Why would they buy your T-shirts over somebody else's T-shirts? What makes mm-hmm. you different or unique? So, like, now that Red Cowan is going, if you tell me, hey, Aaron, I'm going to start a supplement company, and I'm going to sell protein powder, I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you, well, why would they buy your protein powder over my protein powder? Why would they you know? buy yours? Why would they buy yours? Right. So, why would they buy mine? Now, I'm a developed, cool company that everybody uh-huh. wants part of it, right? right. But yeah. in the beginning, how, right. how are you going to make that happen? Because nobody will ever choose Daniel's over mine. Because mine is developed and well-known and reviewed. And, you know, you go Google my protein powder online, you're going to have thousands of positive reviews. And you're going to find it at every store. So when you're starting mm-hmm. off, you better have an idea of what's going to make you different. You better have a plan of some sort, mm-hmm. some differentiating factor. And uh, in, in sports supplements, one of, the, one of the, um, the sucky things is there can only be so much innovation with ingredients because you have to have permissible dietary ingredients. So anything mm-hmm. that's too innovative and unique is probably not legal so um (laughs) and that's where some people go off the tracks because if you create products that are not legal or not permissible dietary ingredients your whole business is floating on some potential legality you know you don't Mm -hmm. want the fda to come and say you're doing something illegal i know i don't want that so you have to find innovation somewhere else Mm -hmm. what about getting getting yourself out there how what's the first thing you would do to start getting the name out Getting the name out there is advertising. I mean, I like um, for for traffic to the website. You know, there's all kinds of different ways to do it, mm-hmm. but uh, the the way that has been successful for us is making people aware. Of course, doing you want to do everything that's organic first. I mean, so you need to have every yeah. platform going. You need to have uh, obviously. Uh, Instagram. You need to be active on your Instagram profile. You need to be um, posting uh, in your story. You need to be doing so. Like people say, what should you do? You should do everything that's free. You so want to get you. You want to hire Geffen Media Group to get you booked on podcasts as well. There you go. There you <laughs> yeah. go. Yeah, of course, hit up Daniel. Right. Absolutely. It's building awareness. It's building awareness. So that is a big deal to get people aware of you and get your get your product or your brand or your name or whatever out there for free, you know, by doing it, by getting on podcasts, by mm-hmm. writing blogs, by, you know, everything, all those things are great. And then when you're talking about paid media, paid stuff, I like uh, Facebook ads to drive traffic to the site, to make people aware. So put out good content and then spend money to put that content in front of more people mm-hmm. so that they can go check out your stuff, check out what you're actually selling. The plan right. from Redcon one from the very beginning was to make awesome content that provided value to people whether it's value in terms of entertainment or value in terms of education, to put that out there to people and actually pay to promote that versus paying to promote buying products. So our very initial money wasn't spent saying like, hey, let's sell this pre-workout and make this much money, so let's do deal, 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 deal on the webs on, the, uh, on our ads. Instead, let's push our content and provide value to people in hopes that they will come back and purchase something um, because they like what we're showing them. And, and that worked pretty rapidly. 
Love it. And are you still very active personally? Like, are you still building your personal brand on social? And is that helping the company as well? So, you know, I, I've never, um, I, I am uh, organically. So, like, I have um, built up some following, you know, 58,000 or something on Instagram. And, mm -hmm. you know, but it's, it's happened totally organically just because people are interested in the brand and they see that I'm the CEO or, right. or they've been following me for years. So, yeah. It's it's happened organically to to some degree. I certainly wouldn't say that because I have people on our staff, you know, um, athletes and influencers that yeah. have millions and millions of followers. Uh, mm. I'm not like that, um, and I haven't put a lot of effort into it. But that has kind of started to shift where I'm I'm seeing, like I think it would be valuable to put me out there more so yes. that if maybe if they people like me or like this story that they'll go check stuff out. Oh, but sure. honestly, honestly, it's a low. It's pretty low on the priority list. Mm. Um, I don't focus like when you look at the website, you go to redcohen.com or you look at our social media, you will rarely, I am not a featured personality hmm. in the branding. Um, right. Which because, is interesting, which is interesting because at the beginning you were, that's what separated you from everyone else is that you were the brand. Right. Well, this is the thing. So this is the thing, Daniel, I still get in front of the camera and speak about the products. So I have the ability to stand in front of a camera and speak, um, uh, speak, I don't want to say eloquently, but I can speak my mind and um, I'm able to convey thoughts yep. easily in front of a camera um, where I find that very, very few athletes are able to do that. Mm. Um, so like if, if we're going to talk about Total War, my pre-workout, I can go through right now and give you a four minute sales spiel and explain every ingredient, tell you how you could use it, who it's for, what effects you're going to feel. Mm -hmm. And I can do that in front of a camera quickly. So we do use me a lot for stuff like that but I don't, my image is not important. You know what I mean? So like, it's the fact that I can do that. If I could have an athlete that would do that, I, I would, but we do still use me in the marketing a lot when it comes to like video ads. I'm an actor in some of the funny commercials and stuff. Um, but, uh, but it's more out of necessity versus me thinking like, Hey, let's make me popular, you know? Love it. Cool. Um, so yeah. how can, how can my audience get in touch with you? How can they find out more about you and follow you? Uh, well, um, on Instagram, that's the, that's because I do post a lot on Instagram. Okay. Um, my, my, it's, it's always my name. It's Aaron, A-R-O-N Singerman, just like a singer man, Aaron Singerman. <laughs> so that's my, my, everywhere. Are you going uh, to sing for us now, Mr. Singerman? I'm a terrible singer. My wife's oh. a good singer. I'm terrible. <laughs> okay. My kids are good. They missed me, the gene. <laughs> you got plenty of genes. Don't worry, my friend. You got plenty Thank of good you. genes. Um, so Aaron, uh, Aaron Singerman, and uh, and then I guess if they want to buy some supplements, they can go to redcon1.com. Yep, yep. Cool. Absolutely, they can. If they want the best, <laughs> that's where they'll go. If they want the best. Aaron, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for picking your brain. And thank you to my fellow brain pickers. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be picking your brain. You've been listening to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast. Inspiration without perspiration is like a tiger without teeth. So to put these ideas into action, head over to danielgeffen.com.